I'm Dan Schifrin. And I'm Kathy Joller. And we are the hosts of the podcast series, The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. This program looks at how both art and the contemporary Jewish experience often takes place in the spaces in between cultures, religions, generations, and artistic practices. Today we have on our show David Katznelson, the Grammy-nominated music producer and owner of the Birdman Records label. Some of you might also know him through two of the acts he signed at Warner Brothers, The Flaming Lips and Nick Cave. David is also a co-founder of the Idelson Society, which describes its mission this way. Jewish history is best told by the music we have loved and lost. In order to incite a new conversation about the present, we must begin by listening anew to the past. David has been an important partner with us here at the Contemporary Jewish Museum since its opening in 2008. He's a co-curator of our current exhibition, Black Sabbath, The Secret Musical History of Black-Jewish Relations, and our previous exhibition, Jews on Final. Welcome. That's good to be here. You ever been inside the StoryCorps booth before? No, no, but um, I've been inside places like this in college. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hesitate to ask. Um, is this is this remind you of a recording booth in any way? I, I have been in many places like this before, where um, doing vocal takes are are done, and this is, this would be a, a wonderful place. You can you can um, the sound if you click your fingers, you can kind of hear how the sound echoes off the walls in the right ways. It uh, it's, it sounds good in here. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your experience as a music producer. What does a music producer do exactly? <laughs> um, we're called the space between, so my sense is that it's kind of in between the artist and, I don't know, maybe financial possibilities or people with other interests. Well, you know, um, so there's two types of production I've done. There's the production with the bands, and then there's production on the reissue um, stuff that I do. As far as the bands are concerned, there's two sides of that as well. There's when you're doing the commercial music production and when you're just doing um, music production. And for me, it kind of blends together. While you definitely are thinking about um, commercial stuff when you're producing a band for a major label and you have you know hundreds of thousands of dollars riding on it, the producer first and foremost responsibility is to be the photographer of the band's sound, to be the person who can capture the band's sound in the best form possible, working with the band um, on their song structures, working with the band on their arrangements. Um, Every band is different. Some bands will come in and it's all done for you, and all you really have to do is press the record button. Uh, some bands that uh, you think they're that way, and then you know midway through the session, you realize that there needs to be um, a cheerleader in there to make sure they don't kill themselves. That's the role of the producer. Um, Jim Dickinson, um, one of the great producers I've, I've ever met, no longer with us now, um, liked producing in abstentia. Occasionally he would like tell the band he couldn't make it to the studio one day after he told them to do the next day so they would actually be on their own so he could come back and then see what would happen. And there's some producers who their first thing they do is fire the drummer and try to take a, a firm reins on the band. And you know, if you ever see uh, documentaries on bands like uh, The Bangles, you know, perfect example of a band who uh, will come to tears when talking about their um, their their producer stories. Um, for me, I only work with stuff I liked. I only work with the music I loved. And theoretically, going into the studio is the last part of a very laborious process. And the studio is the easiest part where you're just pressing record. All the pre-production was done beforehand. Now, producing reissues is different because most of the music you're working with, the people who recorded the music are dead or, you know, the recordings were done a long time ago. The uh, album you were nominated for was a reissue, right? It was a reissue. The Alan Lomax and Haiti Project, where 
Alan Lomax for the Library of Congress went down to Haiti in the 30s and recorded 50 hours of, of music, and we curated 10 hours of that. And um, Alan Lomax was the preeminent American musicologist of the 20th century who, um, starting with his, with his father, John Lomax, went around the world recording um, music that was generally done by the regular population, you know, the regular people who were making music. When, you know, in the, on the Haiti box, there's actually uh, three recordings he did of this classical composer, which is actually world-renowned, and the, the story is he really didn't want to go to that person to record because to him it wasn't the music of the people. And so the producer in this case, and I co-produced it with um, my friend Jeffrey Greenberg and Alan Lomax's daughter, Anna, um, are, you know, what do you do with this music? How do you present it in the right way? How do you make it so uh, whoever gets it will have the best experience with it? And how do you frame it and put it all together? You know, um, detailed liner notes and translations of the, of the songs, many of which were in Creole and French. Um, and then we, uh, we also had a whole other book that was Alan's Diaries. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different job. I wanted to talk a little bit about Black Sabbath. Mm. What is Black Sabbath? What is this exhibition, and, and why is that important to you? Um, Black Sabbath is um, a look at the relations between Afro-Americans and Jews uh, musically and culturally in the 30s and 40s and 50s. My entree into the Idelson conversation was the Cab Calloway stuff, and it was uh, the Slim Gaylord. And for those of you who don't know who either of those two um, performers are, they were very popular in their day. Cab Calloway started in the Cotton Club, and Slim Gaylord really took the New York scene by storm about 10 or 15 years later. And both uh, use language as a way of creating worlds and, and, and rhythms, and a lot of it was very unorthodox. A lot of it wasn't even real. was like, you know, made-up words. Uh, Slim Gaylord's big hit was a flat flute flugies, a floy floy. Language was not just about you know, what we consider language, like me talking to you right now and taking each word and figuring out why they're strung together. It, it, was, it was more like um, using language as a way of showcasing the, the great American melting pot experience. And by the way, Josh Kuhn at Idelson Society hates when I use the word melting pot, because, melting pot because it was a concept that actually left Afro-Americans off the table. But I grew up not knowing that and thinking of melting pot as everybody inclusive. Mm. The black ghettos and the, and, the, and the Jewish ghettos happen to be very close to each other. And um, Slim used Yiddish in a, in a wonderful way in, in his songs. And it, and it was one of those things where it's like you have this proud moment as a, as a young Jewish person where you're not hearing... Jewish music in a, in a context that anybody else considers hip. I mean, that's one of the things the Idelson Society was, was, was like understanding. It's like a lot of this Jewish music was considered so unhip that it just was pretty much, you know, not even put on the, the cutting, the cutout shelves in the record store, just thrown out. But here is, you know, Slim Gaylord who was one of the first people to be kind of like Snoop Dogg, the English language, you know, and, and, you know, he had all these crazy references that people would try to like decipher and all the hipsters and besides the, the music hipsters in, 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 in New York just want to be a part of whatever his scene was. And here he is spouting things about matzo balls and gefilte fish and Dunkin' Bagels. And there's other songs that are just even with, with, with even less meaning to them than that, that are just so Yiddish centric. Um, and I loved it. So, so Black Sabbath to me was like a combination of a lot of loves together. And it was, like, it was, it was just a a wonderful project for me to be a part of. Well, we're the space between here on this podcast, and um, Black Sabbath is, you know, this hyphen between uh, blacks and Jews in terms of music. I'm curious about that that hyphenated space and what both communities learned or um, 
what they might have learned from each other or how they nourished each other. So like so you talk about Slim Gaylord and kind of how he absorbed some of this Yiddish stuff and that connected to some of the language and tech stuff he was working with. Um, on the other end, were there Jewish musicians or consumers? What what did they learn from or how did they absorb um, African-American music? You know, um, so if we're going to talk about this, anybody who's listening could e- – this is one of those things where you could easily have like a – why the heck is he saying that? I totally disagree with him type of opinion because there's a lot of opinions around this kind of a thing. I think it, I, th- I think it's really safe to say that rock and roll came from the the, the Afro American type of R and B and jump blues and things like that. And similarly, um, I think that uh, Jews as songwriters, Jews as musicians, you know, took from a lot of of of, of Afro American music stylings and structures and kind of like made it their own. A lot of songs that were popularized by black musicians were written by Jews. Um, the most amazing one, um, which is a story that everybody knows, but Strange Fruit by uh, Billie Holiday, which talks about lynchings written by a Jew, uh, the same Jew who ended up uh, adopting the Rosenberg kids. I mean, it's just it's an incredible story of the, 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 the crash of two cultures. You know, you always talk about the fact that both Jews and, and, and blacks um, had somewhat similar experiences, which is so not true. I mean, Jews came here, even if they were running away from something, they came here voluntarily, where, um, you know, the slavery, the slavery, horrible, dark chapter of America, where people were just like forced from their homes. It's a, it's a totally different experience. But there is a moment in time when both were the other, were the outsider, both were living amongst each other, and I th- and I think that they both created languages that were used by the other, and I think that if you if you look at lyrics and if you look at, at melodies and if you look at all that stuff around that time, um, it's not just one gooding from the other. I really do think it's some kind of like real a weird merging of the two. You set up this um, the first ever Jewish pop up record store. The Idelson Society did. The Idelson Society did indeed collaborative venture. Um, my first encounter with Tikva Records and all they represented was through that. In a very unexpected way, there's mid century modern furniture everywhere, um, old timey posters on the wall, and just like racks and racks of these old Jewish records. And um, it's the first time I kind of got that um, this Jewish music this jewish pop music was not it was not just genre stuff at a, a certain point it was pop music like it was in this community it was what was oh, being yeah. listened to and i think i hadn't quite understood its pervasiveness before that um so yeah could you tell us a little bit more about the tikva records project tikva records was kind of like the folk ways of jewish records it was like the document of jewish records in a lot of ways or the motown of jewish records and alan b jacobs was the barry gordy of of tikva and um, his whole thing was um, putting out a lot of records over a short period of time, like 23 years, like 22 years from the 50s, 60s and a little bit of the 70s. And the records um, were either like religious records and it was kind of like a how to Jew, how you can like bring Passover into your home how you can bring the high holidays into your home for people who had moved out to the suburbs waiting for their temples to be built or moved out to the suburbs and just kind of were trying to live this weird life of both being an American and a Jew. Um, But also the pop stuff, quote-unquote, like you were referring to earlier, where, you know, the Catskill scene was, like, at its height at that period of time, and there were stars there. The Yiddish theater was happening, and there was big stars there. Um, Tikva 
was the label to get them at the earliest stages of their career and the latest stage of their career. A lot of artists went on and left Tikva and, and, and you know, went on to major labels and went on to, to, to bigger stardom. Um, but Tikva was the place that um, just kind of allowed there to be a Jewish voice, uh, a real Jewish – there was a lot of Jewish voices in the music industry. A lot of the music industry were Jews. But this was an authentic Jewish sound. Using the word authentic is so wrong. It was, it was a Jewish sound one way or another. So Tick for Records was, you know, you know, we decided to do a pop-up record store. You know, the four of us get on the phone every week and, you know, try to figure out ways of telling the stories that we want to tell and ways of kind of like bringing our mission closer to all the people who we want to touch. You know, record stores used to be communities. And, and, and the record stores that are around today, the successful ones still are communities, but there's very, very few of them. And it was where you went to find out not only about music, but if you see old shots of record stores, there were listing booths, and people were sitting in those listing booths, and they had a record going on, but they were definitely talking about the dates they were on that week or you know who won, who won the baseball game. And it was a place where people could convene, and that was the big thing. And that has really gone from our culture. And we thought that's why we call it a 1950s pop-up record store, Jewish pop-up records, because what we really wanted to create the sense of community. And we had people sit in the listening stations that we had. We had a listening station. We'd have a lot of room. But we had people there for two, three, four hours throwing records on and talking about the records they were listening to. Who are, who are those people, by and large? All different sorts, all different sorts. I mean, you know, uh, we were gearing it towards um, the, the, a younger generation, and we got a lot of the, the, them as well. But one thing, you, when I, one thing I realized by throwing events is if you do something very, very compelling, all generations come. There was this one couple who came in, and their father was having a birthday, and they wanted to buy their father a birthday present, and they were in their 20s. And they stayed all day long, um, and it went beyond. Then they, they bought the father the birthday present like hour three, and then they stayed for another four hours listening to the records. Um, the second day we were open, um, someone came in and looked on the wall at the records, and they were like, you're selling these things? And that's when you have this conversation where it's so funny you say that because these are records that were thrown away, that were discarded. But you put them on the wall, and you just show what they really are, and you empower them just a little bit, and they start going at it themselves, and they start calling you to them. The, one of the main purposes of the Idelson Society is to, to call attention to something that should never have been lost. We should never have had to exist to, to, to show the, the beauty and the power of a lot of these records. I mean, some of these records still aren't even known about. You know, some of these records still you know, need to be digitized and put out. And you know, we have six or seven projects that we want to do. But Tick for Records, the store, was a celebration was a physical manifestation of what we what we want to do. Plus, looking at this label that was such an important label to uh, to Jews um, in in the twentieth century, to to, to like, kind of like showcase what the post war World War Two experience was all about. Yeah, I mean, I'm just struck by your kind of like archivist glee and like literary nerdiness and musical nerdiness, oh, like in the best possible way. Right, that's a compliment. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, in I'm, this podcast, it's totally a compliment. Um, and kind of what's that's brought to uh, an art museum where sound usually isn't part of what's cataloged and filed away in storehouses. And so to get you to geek out a little bit more, like is there something from the past that has not been recorded that you wish you could have archived and heard? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe pick pick one. I mean, it, it, it'd be impossible to pick one. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is like, you know, I wish I could have, uh, I wish I could have heard Scott Joplin play, 
You know, I wish, you know, what's interesting about the blues, I'm a huge fan of the blues, is that the recorded blues of the 20s, which was the first time they were recorded, it was already a uh, sentimental, um, you know, version of what really was the blues in the 1800s. So I would have given anything to hear where that came from. Um, the first Afro-American recordings were of slave songs, um, and they just came out on Archeophone a couple of years ago. just amazing. But they were done in the 20s, and it wouldn't have been amazing to... Uh, to hear the original versions of, of those songs. And then, you know, I mean, it's only in the last 20 years that recording has been such a, 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 a proletariat type of, of device. You know, beforehand, you need to, for the most part, you need to, to know somebody with a studio and things. So if you look at music history, it's filled with stories of, of you know, people playing music. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to hear David play his lute? You know, wouldn't that have been amazing to hear if he had, I mean, you know, we read about it and it sounds all great, but maybe he didn't have the greatest, uh, you know, tone or maybe his, or, or maybe on the other side, he played it in a way that no one had ever thought about before. The exhibition Jews on Vinyl, which you co-curated, the genesis of that kind of came from finding these records, right? And kind of discovering them like an archaeologist. Could you describe a little bit about that? I'd say archaeologist is putting a little lofty. <laughs> I'm sitting on my knees with dirt everywhere, searching through record stores for for stuff. It's not just Jewish stuff; it is stuff, right? I'm I'm, I'm looking for everything and anything, and so um, I've been collecting records since before. You know, my brothers gave me uh, the the entire Monkeys catalog when I came home from the hospital. So I literally have never had a day of my life at home without records, um, and I still have those records. My daughter actually owns them. I gave them to her, and when she was brought into the world, I bought her a record player, and she has a great collection. Um, she has some 78s, too, that are pretty amazing. Um, but uh, Your daughter is like two, right? She's one and a half. Okay. <laughs> um, when you collect for such a long period of time, it's only when you have this like massive thing that you can look on it and see, well, you know, what are some of the genres that, like, I, that, that, that I was really like, going for? What, what, did I, what did I do here? Any uh, genre that you collect, you can look at the, the record covers and uh, the artistic expression, if done correctly, you know, kind of reflect something. And what is that something? And if you put these Jewish record covers together, it's actually telling the story of a people, much in the way that the Bible was telling the story of the people through the written word. But this is the 20th century. And this is a time of upheaval and, and, and some of the most tremendous, uh, horrible, you know, periods of, of our people's existence and, and some of the most celebratory periods as well. And the record covers were just there telling the story in a lot of ways, the most objective way, and, and, and creating some fictions along the way too, but a very objective way of telling a story. Record covers as art. What do you think about that? Oh, hundred yeah. percent. I mean, I mean, there. I mean, sometimes, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. Do you have a favorite uh, cover or a favorite cover that represents something specifically about like the Jewish experience that you think just is the snapshot of a period? It's funny because the first thing I flash on, um, and it's not my favorite one, but the first thing I flash on is there's a Tikva record where it's the United States and it has stars of the big Jewish cities. And it's like Boston, New York, um, San Francisco, Chicago, and Petaluma, you know, <laughs> because that's actually where the first Jews really came in Florida. But it's like you look at it, it's like, <laughs> that's who else would think that? I think, I think Los Angeles is out there too. Um, but... Um, Petaluma is is the city just north of San Francisco where, you know, 80 years ago, these 
Jewish socialists came to create their utopian environment. And uh, it's uh, it's actually an important part of our exhibition, California Dreaming, um, one section of which is called uh, What is a Promised Land? Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting in that record cover, they have Petaluma along with Los Angeles and San Francisco as these three you know high points of West Coast Jewish culture. Not, not anymore. Probably the closest thing to kibbutz life was Petaluma. Right, exactly. Although, I don't know, maybe L.A. was not as much L.A. as it was now. You know, my wife turned to me finally and was like, God, you really listen to music all the time. You know, and, and, and our house is, is me throwing records on pretty much all the time. And there's constantly music coming in and going out. And people ask me about iPods. And, I, you know, it's hard for me to have an iPod because that's not really the way I experience music um, by, you know, figuring out what I'm going to want to hear over and over again. It would take me a long time to keep taking the stuff off and putting the stuff on because, you know, constantly listen to new stuff. Were you always that way? Yeah, always, always. It's, I mean, it's been a, a mania. I mean, I, luckily, I, I have a lot of friends because I've been in the music industry since I was fifteen. I have a lot of friends who share this mania, so so I'm not living alone. Although a lot of it is very lonely. You know, you wait till everybody goes to sleep in the house, and you get your headphones on, and you you know you start throwing things on, um, and then you know we're gearing up for some new idols and stuff. So that makes you focus. You know, I'm, I'm doing the specialty box set. You know, so I'm listening to a lot of. Jump Blues and early R&B from like 47, 48, 49, 50. So it's like the projects lead you. The Adelson Society and the Alan Lomax and Haiti Project and the one we're working on now, which is looking at the specialty records uh, story, which was the, the label that brought the world rock and roll. You know, music is, is many things. Um, it's obviously what people think of it. It's, a, it's, it's the sounds that are put together in a, such a way that can inspire. And, but it's also... Um, usually uh, the the mechanism for people to talk about their lives and what they're and what they're doing at the time, and in my opinion, music um, except for the stuff that's purely made for profit, which was not done back in those days as much, especially with the kinds of people that were being recorded by Allen or whatever. Music reflected um, a, a, a very objective way of looking at the the life and time of a people. You know, I mean, I think hip hop does a wonderful, or at least did a wonderful job of that in in, in its early days. And like, you know, I th- I think that when you find the best music, what you're really finding is voices expressing earnestly their situations and doing it in a way that enables you to feel it, no matter you know where you are in the world, or even if you necessarily understand what they're saying, if you're not speaking the language or things, that carries with it something that uh, is just bigger than the individual. We now have over 100 years of recorded sound. So um, this last you know, century or so has a whole new look on it because we can actually hear it. Where as opposed to the 1800s where you know, besides a few tapes here and there, um, you know, the musicians are, are just silent photographs that you happen to see. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here and I love the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Thanks for joining us.